Patience is a virtue. Not right now it isn't. Nothing says romance like a gift of a kidnapped, injured woman. Life finds a way. So, pretty much touch anything and get your head chopped off. I hereby christen this budget Barbie camper Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. The year is 1984. We are smack dab in the middle of a renaissance of adventure movies. Raiders came out in 1981, Temple of Doom is coming out in 84, and we're only a couple of years away, of course, from The Last Crusade. It is in this context that a little movie called Romancing the Stone comes out and makes just a fuckload of money. Yeah, tiny budget, but great return. Great returns. The problem is a lot of people lump this movie in with off-brand Indiana Jones At the time, it was occasionally commented, oh, this is just kind of a ripoff. They're taking advantage of this trend. But a lot of what we're going to talk about around this movie is how unfair that is. And not only because, as I know you feel, it's its own thing. It's very different from that. Mm -hmm. But also because it was actually written before any of the Indiana Jones movies. So that's the stage I wanted to set. Just we're coming into a movie that I don't feel like has gotten the credit that it's due. It's tremendously fun to watch. It has a very fantastic combination in Michael Douglas, Kathleen Turner, Danny DeVito. They loved working together, by the way. Mm -hmm. So the three of them became really good friends and they have really great chemistry in the movie. It has fantastic use of landscape and place. It's in the jungle. It's set in Colombia, but it was filmed in Mexico. So it has so many of those things that we love. Has great characters, great locations. I'm going to shut up now. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) I'm very excited to watch this movie. And maybe not for the reason that you'd expect. The reason I'm so excited is because I've recently seen The Lost City. (laughs) How right was I? Not very right. Oh! (laughs) Okay, okay. All right, all right, all right, all right. Continue. I didn't like The Lost City very much. Well, I didn't say I liked it. I really like The Lost City. I said it was stealing from this movie. Oh, yeah. Then in that case, yes. I thought you had really enjoyed Lost City. I mean, I liked it okay. I liked it well enough. I didn't. But that's kind of why I'm wanting to revisit this. Because, yes, you are correct that it has taken a lot from this exact script. And I think it just kind of did it worse. Yeah. So I'm wanting to go back and see the OG. And I remember this from my childhood. And like you were saying, it came from the renaissance of adventure movies. But I also don't like to put it in the same league as the Indiana Jones franchise, just because to me, I saw it at a different time in my life. I was introduced, I think, to Indiana Jones first, and then eventually to Romancing the Stone later. The budgets are completely different. The filming locations are completely different. Mm -hmm. I just have never had that thought, even though I guess if I had been paying attention, or if I had been born, (laughs) and as a tiny little baby was paying attention to this. (laughs) (laughs) I can just picture you for the audience. He was such a little like blonde baby and he was very serious. So it's always like Mason with his little pale hair and skin and then just these like big eyes and very serious. Yes. So I can just picture you being like, hmm, I don't think this holds up to Raiders. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I don't think of them, you know, at all. And so the context... I think is good to call out. But in my mind, they're so different that they both deserve their own spotlight. Yeah. I mean, I do feel like I saw this really early. I actually texted mom about it. And she said, Oh, yeah, I think your dad and I would have gone to go see that in the movie theater. We probably rented it on VHS and played it for you guys. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I know it's a favorite of the family. I know it's something our parents would have shown us. Looking back at it, what do you remember? What are the scenes that jump out to you? For me, the environment And I know that after doing a little bit of research, this was a big part of the production story was fighting with the environment on a 90 day shoot where half of the time it was raining. And that was great because that was what the script called for. But at the same time, it caused a bunch of production issues. (laughs) But I mean, I remember being very sucked into that and feeling as though the characters were evolving and changing over time especially Joan Wilder, really going from somebody who, you know, is an inner city person living with her cat to gaining a massive amount of confidence throughout the film to the very end, you know, where she's really a badass. 
I remember taking that journey with her and really enjoying that development. Yeah. I, looking back, remember some really fun and funny moments. I remember as they're escaping and they're in the Jeep or whatever, they meet the cartel character who just loves her books. I mean, that tickled (laughs) me to death as a kid. I also like the, this is kind of a fun play on the city girl coming out of her shell situation or like the urban successful woman softens up because it's actually kind of the opposite. She is in her apartment just writing romance novels. Crying to her own story, her own characters, which there's nothing wrong with that at all. It just shows the emotional connection that she has to her own writing. And that's fantastic, yeah. So the lesson she needs to learn isn't like, oh, stop being a business lady and soften up. Mm -hmm. It's you can do these things. You can get out of your comfort zone. You can go adventuring in the jungle. You can even have the kind of life that you're fantasizing about living through your characters, taking it one step closer, do it yourself. And I really enjoy that. Instead of a softening, it's kind of a strengthening. Yeah. And then also just the chemistry of the cast. It is really well cast, which is interesting because Michael Douglas was trying to cast a bunch of other people. He produced this movie. He bought the script. Actually, even before that, he had come across the script, went to Malibu, to the restaurant, talked to Diane Thomas. He got this movie made. And then he actually really tried to cast someone else and other people just weren't taking it because they didn't believe in it the way he did. So I just love the story of Michael Douglas really believing in this woman and her story, working so hard to get this movie made. And it just is such a little gem. And that is not a pun. (laughs) Well, now it is. (laughs) Yeah, now it is. (laughs) Yeah. And I think one of the things that I didn't really realize going into this movie when I saw it the first time was the connection that Danny DeVito and Michael Douglas had Mm -hmm. before this. I think it's very interesting how they met and the bond that they formed and them being roommates for a while before this all came to be. We'll talk more about that in the second half, but I think it's fantastic that Michael Douglas went so far for this and believed in it so much Mm -hmm. because he had done some other producing at this point, but very different types of production. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, a very serious, with humorous elements, but a very different type of movie. And yeah, it sounds like the links that he went to to get this made really showed how much he believed in the script. And going so far as to finally take on the leading role, even though I think it's something he probably was trying to avoid due to drawing comparisons to his father, Kirk Douglas, and the types of roles that he was in. Yeah, it is really a cool story. And I love any story where something happens because someone else really believes in your talent. So in this case, Michael Douglas really believing in Diane Thomas. But, you know, it kind of goes both ways because at this point in his career, he's not the Michael Douglas we know now. True. So it's sort of this story of he's believing in her, but she's believing in him too. And everybody involved in the movie is believing in him that he can produce this all on his own and set up production in Mexico and manage all of this crazy stuff. And from the casting stories, it just seems the case that a lot of people didn't. But at the end of the day, he made a fantastic movie that has lasted and been loved for so much longer than anybody at the time expected. (laughs) So I'm excited. I'm excited to be doing it. I'm sure. And also, I have memories from it that are just so vivid. The alligators in the movie, that stuff is just so fun. There's just so many alligators. (laughs) There's just so many. many. And then the dancing scene of them after they get out of the jungle and they have this really nice moment. They've been getting to know each other and they're just enjoying each other and having fun together and she's letting loose a little bit mm-hmm. and you're starting to see the confidence really shine in that scene. I don't know. It's really heartwarming for an adventure movie, but not in a sappy way, really. Just in a... It's nice. Just as nice. For sure. How much of this movie taps into the idea that you can go from being an everyday person to kind of an action adventure participant in a moment's notice. Yeah, a lot. (laughs) I think absolutely. Yeah. It's that fantasy of even if you are sad and lonely and your only friend is your cat and you don't like to leave your apartment, all it takes is one wrong turn or right turn and you can maybe start on a different path. Or all it takes is one good screenplay and you don't have to be a waitress anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Because there's one that's the fictional version of that same idea. And then there's one where the very real story was somebody wrote this screenplay and then ended up selling it for $250,000 and, you know, kind of changing the course of her life and film history. So 
And that kind of goes back to the whole Michael Douglas believing in her thing. Because at the time, people were like, why would you pay that? This is literally a waitress who's never written anything before. And he said later in interviews, it doesn't matter. It just matters what's on the page. Right. It doesn't matter if it's the first script or the 10th script or the 50th script. It's either there on the page or it's not. And if it's there, it's magic and I'm going to pay for it. I love that people like that exist. I mean, that's the fantasy, isn't it? <laughs> Honestly, it's a fantasy that I am very familiar with because my whole life I've been like, maybe if I just make something good enough mm -hmm. or maybe if something happens. I think I've always been more fixated on like the Hamilton thing of I'm going to write my way out. Yeah. But it's equally desirable, probably more so <laughs> to just have a major change drop on your lap where you're just like, oh, yeah, this is this is great. It's the change for the better. But either way, who doesn't have their own dreams of that? Yeah, my therapist would not agree with that approach. Of <laughs> just make the best thing in the world and then all your problems will be solved. <laughs> the slow progress is just as valid. Yeah. Totally. But yeah, the idea that from one day to the next, your entire reality can change. It's very appealing, mm -hmm. especially when you're discontent with your current situation. And another thing too is this movie was my first exposure to a lot of these actors. So, I mean, my first Michael Douglas, Kathleen Turner, maybe not my first Danny DeVito, but probably. I don't know what my first Danny DeVito movie would have been. I don't know. Because now my head is all just always sunny memes. And like, that's it. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I can't <laughs> separate that anymore. Yeah, It's blocked out. Yeah, Whatever wholesome stuff he did before that is gone. He was in Twins and whatever. Yeah, Twins. But no, it's all just all always sunny. Yeah, it's all just who pooped the bed now. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yep. Going back to your comment about how we're meeting people you know, at this really formative part of their careers, Robert Zemeckis, who was chosen by Michael Douglas to direct this, was also kind of coming off of a very weird part of his career. Mm -hmm. And this is pre Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Back to the Future, Forrest Gump, Contact. You know, this is really kind of on the upswing of his career. And I think this gave him that catalyst in a lot of ways to kind of vault into that next echelon. So... Michael Douglas taking a chance on him after some of these, I don't know if they'd be considered flops. No, they were, for sure. His two movies before this were bad flops. Yeah, 1941 and what was the other one? I didn't write it down. That's how bad it was. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a joke. But it's true. He had just directed two movies that had lost a lot of money. Yes. So coming into this, studios were like, no, thank you. Who is this guy? And he was pretty young, too. I think he was about 23 when he directed the first one of those two or something like that. I think he was around 28 when he made this movie. So he's a fairly young guy and had just lost a bunch of money twice. Yeah. So coming into this, it wasn't even like on the upswing. It was still the downswing of his career. Yeah. This is the movie that turned it around for him. Right. And we'll talk more about that after because there's some pretty fun details about that. I bet. But now, household name, Zemeckis. Yes. But before we get into all of that, Emily, how do you feel about watching Romancing the Stone? I feel so good about it. I want to watch it right now. Okay, let's do it. Okay. <laughs> I'm getting out of this jungle dump. I am fed up to here with this treasure hunt business. Yeah. Ira, you miserable worm, you lied to me. You said she was a city girl. Out of her element. Just get her in the map and bring him back. Piece of cake. Piece of cake, my butt. What went wrong? I'll tell you what went wrong. First of all, guess who else is here? You're dead right, Solo. What? Secondly, she's got herself a partner. Like shooting holes and everything. The minimum price for taking a stranded woman to a telephone is $400. 375 in traveler's checks? Not a deal. That's just the beginning of what's going on down here. There's nothing you can say that'll make me go back into that hellhole. Don't bring that up, Ira. Ira, stop it! All right, I'll go back. But this time, you're coming with and me. And we're back. We are. <laughs> We've just watched Romancing the Stone. What do you think? How do you feel? Tell me everything. <laughs> everything. Okay, well, that's going to take a minute. I really enjoyed this movie yet again. I mean, we've seen it now. I don't know how many times. Yeah. But I think all the things that we said in the first half about even though it existed in kind of the same cycle as some of the Indiana Jones movies, like, it's so different. It's romance more so than it is adventure for me. I think there's an adventure element to it because of the stone and everything. But it really is a story of Joan going through this incredible journey <laughs> and trying to help out her sister in a very sticky situation. And 
along the way, of course, she meets up with Jack T. Colton. <laughs> Jack T. Colton. Yep. What does the T stand for, Emily? Trouble. Trouble. <laughs> okay, well, there are varying accounts of what the T stands for. Trustworthy. Yeah. Truthful. Truthful. I think that one we'll have to take under consideration because <laughs> he's complex. Yes, but her encounters with Jack T. Colton as they are trying to outrun Zolo, the mercurial police detective on their trail, and evade these people who kidnapped her sister and are trying to extort her for this map that was sent to her. Yep. All of that. I read it so much more as a romance with a side of adventure than an adventure with a side of romance. Oh, see, that's interesting. I don't know. What do you think? I'm kind of the inverse. Okay. I like both parts of it, but I guess I see it primarily as this woman who really needs an adventure of her own. So I think for me, it's Joan goes off, finds out that she can do things she would never think that she could do, that she enjoys things that she never thought she would. She's swinging on vines. She's landing on her butt. She's making decisions forcefully, making choices. So I think for me, it's mostly about her getting out of her shell, out of her usual circumstances, and discovering that she can be the adventure hero. And then along the way, she meets, of course, Jack D. Colton. T stands for... Terrapin. <laughs> that was that was the first was the first keyword I thought of. Sure, I guess the reason that I start in the romance mode is because we are introduced to her as a romance novelist, and then this adventure kind of manifests itself as an embodiment of a lot of the things that end up in her novels. And so maybe my mindset was just, we're in romance mode, and she's going to find this romance along this journey. And yes, it is a journey. Yes, it is an adventure. I agree that it's an adventure movie, if that was ever in question. <laughs> not from me. <laughs> no, not from you. But when you start from one frame of mind, and then you're finding things along the way that kind of fit it, that, that yeah. I think leads me to think of it more as a romance. I thought of one. The T stands for there's adventure. <laughs> yeah. I like both parts of it. I like the romance. I like that they genuinely bond. Mm -hmm. They start to like each other, like lowercase like each other before they start, start to, to like, like, like each, each other. other. Yeah. But one of the things that really jumped out to me in this watch of it was the physical comedy is so on point. It is. There are so many great moments of little physical comedy callbacks, like she swings across the ravine and falls directly under her butt. And then later, she, I uh, think, out of the window, or there's some other place where she falls directly under her butt. Just a little runner of this sort of like plomp, flat butt with her legs sticking out. <laughs> but there are also classic gag jokes. Maybe I should save this for after we've done the plot summary. But so they've crashed the bus uh, into Jack T. Colton's truck, and she's trying to convince him to help her get to a phone. And he says, like, oh, I've just lost everything I own. And she's like, please, I need your help. That's my new career. It's very lady. Lady, half a year's work just flew south for the winter, all right? My Jeep is totaled. In about five minutes, everything I own in the world is going to be wet. So can you lighten up, please? I really don't have the time. I'll pay you. You don't understand. It's a matter of life and death. If I don't get to How my How much? $50? Oh, shit. Well, you, you said you just lost everything you owned. Not my sense of humor. You think my entire worldly possessions was $50? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, there's another one, too, that's like a really classic delivery of a line is where her publisher asks her, so her sister Elaine, Elaine's husband, has recently died, and Eduardo has sent the map to Joan, and that's kind of the inciting incident for her receiving this map that everybody wants. So her publisher knows that her sister's husband has just died, and she says, I'm sorry I even dragged you to this place. I just want you to get out. Look, I know how hard you've been working. I know you're upset about your sister. Come on. How is she? Have you heard from her? Elaine? I spoke to her last week. She's still in Colombia. Have they found her husband's body yet? Just the one piece. <laughs> <laughs> I 
and that kind of that, that delivery is just so oh, good. Gosh. It was. In some ways, it is just so much within the line of like classic comedy structure and classic physical comedy and classic like deadpan type lines. It feels just really solid comedically. Yeah, I agree. I also wrote down comments about the physical comedy because. As Joan is swinging across this ravine and lands on her butt for the first time, it's very cute. But then Jack tries to swing across the same ravine and lands just face first, kind of Tarzan. (laughs) No, George of the Jungle into the tree. George of the Jungle style into the wall. And of course, the stone is very rubbery in this movie. Even though I think a lot of movies from this era weren't meant to be shown in HD. You can see some of the magic behind stunts like that, you know, where he clearly landed into a foam piece of stone, but the physical comedy is there. You know, she lands rather gracefully. He lands rather clumsily. Probably the most famous shot in this movie is after that mudslide. So they're walking down the road. It's raining really heavily and there's a mudslide and she gets swept down first and then him. And she lands in this like muddy pool, kind of like you would, you know, with her sort of knees propped up. And then he comes sliding down and lands like face first in her lap. And that is a funny moment. I mean, you know, it could be kind of uncomfortable, but I feel like it's mostly played pretty comedically with just a good solid shot of him looking at her leg. Jack T. Colton, the T stands for thighs. (laughs) (laughs) See, I feel like that scene is overplayed. When he lands there and in this very awkward situation, I think a lot of like the normal person reaction is, oh, dear God, (laughs) what have I done? I need to get out of here. I need to apologize. You know, I need to whatever. But he's just like, look at where I am. (laughs) Okay. So, I mean, fair enough. But I do sort of feel like he doesn't do the Aruga thing. He just mostly is like, he takes a second. He kind of looks, laughs and throws back his head and then is like, oh, this has been just a hell of a morning. So, I mean, I don't know. It doesn't bother me too much. Okay. But I bring it up because that shot actually came from storyboarding. It was the storyboard artist who came up with that shot. And it has since become the most famous shot of the movie. Mm-hmm. But that being kind of an iconic moment from this movie, you know, it's essentially about the physical comedy. Throw them down. He lands in an awkward place. Ha, ha, ha. It's really driven by that. And the performances and the characters, the actors themselves, are such a big part of that. I feel like Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner and Danny DeVito are all really good at that. But of the three of them, especially Kathleen Turner and Danny DeVito, Danny DeVito, we know, Mm -hmm. because he's always been great at that kind of thing. But Kathleen Turner is such a natural physical comedian. Who knew? Yeah, who knew? Her emotions, her facial expressions, it's all funny. And she does it so effortlessly. Yes, completely agree. So that was kind of my biggest takeaway was that. And I kind of want to go back and watch other movies of hers with that in mind. You know, of course... Well, we'll probably do Jewel of the Nile at some point. And the other movie that she and Michael Douglas did together was War of the Roses. But even like Body Heat, which is a very different style of movie. Mm. I would be interested to go back and watch it and just think about her physical performance and physical comedy and see where all of this comes from. Yeah, I want to kind of give a counterpoint to myself and my own thoughts that this is more of a romance movie in that she is such a quick adopter and she's so willing to move from scene to scene and from challenge to challenge that I gained a lot of admiration for her of, oh, she's just willing to go. There's a scene, especially when Jack is chopping through a forest using his machete. And he says, well, if you think you could do it, better be my guest. And she's like, all right, fine, I'll do that then. Because I am not afraid of that challenge. And I feel like a lot of movies would glaze over that and be like, oh, no, you're right. Keep going. I'm sorry. But she's like, no, I'm up for the challenge. I want to learn how to do this. Maybe I've never done it before, but I have the confidence in myself that I can master something like that. Yeah. And she just goes for it. And I love that. It's such a cute scene, too. I love her face in that scene because she takes that machete and she's dripping with rain and she's having to blink a lot because of the rain flowing down her face. It's like if you've ever seen a four-year-old that's just very set on doing something for themselves mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's she's taking the machete and she's doing these little slightly cautious hacks yeah. and then she just keeps going and her face is running down with water and she's like, I've got it. I'm just going to machete the shit out of this. <laughs> it's very cute. <laughs> 
Yeah. And at first, you know, it is slow, but she gains speed and momentum and confidence. And like, that's what you want out of a character that's developing in real time. Yeah. But before we get too much deeper. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was very excited to tell you all of the things that I had observed. I want to know all the things. I just also know that there is another piece of this that you occasionally enjoy. I do. Is it perchance the plot summary? Yeah, the plot summary. All right, let's get it. I hope you like this one. I'm sure I will. We open on wet titties. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That was cheap. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, for the audience, I didn't actually do this on purpose, but I did see it happen and didn't register it. He was beginning to take a sip of ginger beer, but I'm not that malicious. I didn't actually do that on purpose, but I should have noticed that. Okay. Start that over. We open on wet titties in an old timey undershirt. A dirty, mean looking outlaw type comes busting in through the front door of the cabin. Wait, is this a western? Am I in the wrong movie? Nope. It's just a scene from Joan Wilder's latest romance novel. (laughs) Our faceless heroine is more than just a damsel in distress, though. As the bad guy advances, she reaches for a knife strapped to her thigh and throws it right into his heart. Galloping away, she meets up with a dashing cowboy, her beloved Jesse, and they ride off into the horizon together. Cut to a typewriter. Joan, our real heroine, is wrapping up her manuscript. To celebrate, she lights some candles, gives her cat a can of tuna, and pours an airplane bottle of lukewarm Di Sirono into a wine glass. We're supposed to take this as an indication that she's a lonely loser, but honestly, it sounds like a pretty nice night. She caps it off by happily smashing her dishes in the fireplace and passing out on the couch. I really love that scene. It was good. No, I didn't read that as loser at all. I read that as... First of all, like when she finishes the novel and writes the last lines on the typewriter, she's happy with it. And there is nothing better than finishing something and being happy with the result. I have finished things and been uncertain with the result or felt badly, felt like I didn't live up to whatever standard I had. But to finish something and genuinely be happy with it and then decide to celebrate with your cat... That's a fucking awesome night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. And it's really sweet. Her cat is a happy little cat. Yeah. And they seem like they're having a great time. I feel happy for her. I do feel like we're supposed to read it, though, as, like, not flattering. But fuck that. It sounds great. Yeah, well, we live in 2023, and a lot <laughs> has happened since then. It's absolutely true. It hits different today. <laughs> yeah. All right, so, on her way to meet her publisher in the morning, Joan runs into a neighbor who's holding a package for her. She's running late, so she just takes the large envelope with her, barely missing a murderous-looking guy breaking into her apartment. She comes back from the meeting to a ransacked apartment and a frantic phone call from her sister, Elaine. The package is from Elaine's late husband, Eduardo, sent before he died, and Elaine has been kidnapped in Colombia by smugglers who want to get it back. These smugglers, cousins from Queens named Ira and Ralph, (laughs) offer to trade Elaine for the map and demand that Joan bring it to Cartagena. So... Joan heads to Columbia to rescue her sister, but immediately after landing gets on the wrong bus, thanks to Colonel Zolo, the guy who broke into her apartment looking for the map. He gave her bad directions to get her on a bus heading into the mountains. Ralph is hot on their heels, but before he can catch up, the bus crashes into a jeep stopped on the roadside. The rest of the passengers trudge away, but Zolo stays behind with a very disoriented Joan. Just as Zolo pulls a gun on her to demand the map, a figure appears, a figure that looks remarkably like the hero from her novels. He's the owner of the Jeep, an American poacher, looking for exotic birds for the pet trade. (laughs) I feel like we don't talk enough about, like, okay, he's smuggling rare birds. That's not good. No, it is not. I guess at the time it wasn't as known. People were not thinking, oh, exotic bird poaching is real bad. (laughs) Yeah, but... He does talk about how, like, this is six months worth of work that has just flown away, essentially. And we're like, oh, that's sad. But no, actually, (laughs) (laughs) it's not. Probably a good thing that those birds went back to their natural homes. Yeah, absolutely. After a shootout with Zolo, the dashing stranger agrees to help her get to a phone for $375 in traveler's checks. American Express traveler's checks. Yes, only the best. They aren't on the road for very long before a mudslide dumps them deep into the jungle. 
in the middle of a torrential rainstorm, leading to an iconic shot of him landing in her lap, shall we say. <laughs> After hours of hacking through the undergrowth, they find a plane crash site and are able to camp out in the cabin of the plane, where they use kilos of marijuana to start a fire and stay both warm and pretty baked. Getting high on the abandoned supply leads to some bonding moments, and they seem to start genuinely liking each other. Joan asks what he really wants in life, it's a sailboat, and tells him more about what's going on when he accidentally discovers the map in her back. Joan passes out hard, and Jack has a chance to look at the map, which seems to lead to something called El Corazon. In the morning, they get to a small village led by a friendly drug lord who's a big fan of Joan's. God, I love that character. Oh my god, me too. You looked up his name, but he's in, what, Three Amigos? His name is Alfonso Aro. And yes, he is in Three Amigos, and one of my favorite parts of this entire movie is that apparently he not only reads Joan's novels himself, he reads them to his, <laughs> his friends. His henchmen. To his henchmen on Saturdays. Yeah, it's so cute. Okay, Joan Wilder, write us out of this one. Joan Wilder? The Joan Wilder? You are Joan Wilder, the novelist? Yes, I am. I read your books. I read all your books. Come in. Este es Juanita Wilder, la que escribe las novelas que le leo los sábados. Juanita. Le damos la bienvenida, ¿verdad, muchachos? Juanita. Es Juanita. Come in. Adiós, Come in. amiga. I can't believe Adiós. you're here. Joan Wilder. Oh. <laughs> I've been reading your books all these years. I'm so honored to have you here. I can't believe it. <laughs> so cute. So, anyway, he's a big fan. He shows them the local sites, including one of the landmarks on the map. When Zolo's men turn up, Juan helps them escape and lends them his truck, which he calls... The Mule. My little mule, Pepe. Yeah, little mule, Pepe. And it is, in fact, a completely badass Ford Bronco, by the way. It really is. Beautiful car. I don't know about beautiful, but <laughs> it is very effective. Jack and Joan make it to a bigger town to clean up and part ways, but get distracted by a festival and end up spending a romantic, why are you making that face? I just realized something. What? <laughs> the reason that I like that truck so much is because of Back to the Future, which is another Robert Zemeckis movie. Oh, okay. Connections. You seem really shook by this. <laughs> shook well, it. Okay. Shook works as well. No, I really like the truck in Back to the Future, and I feel like there is a connection between those two trucks that I've never noticed before. Zemeckis likes the Broncos. Well, the truck in Back to the Future is actually a Toyota. Oh, okay, fine. Whatever. But still, same style, roughly. Cool. Okay, I'm sorry. No, no, man, go for it. <laughs> Listen, there are going to be movies where I'm going to have my own little fixations on cars. Yes, your Healy 3000s. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, these days, okay, okay. I've been really into the 67 Impala that's in Supernatural. Oh, really? okay. uh, oh, yeah. It's a beautiful car. I mean, for me, all of my favorites are like 67, 68, 69, 70 Challenger. Mm. Our dad, for the record, had a 68 Cornette. I like the 66 Roadrunners. Actually, okay. I think it's a 66 I'm thinking of. I'm not an expert. So if anybody out there is like, oh, I'm actually, <laughs> that's sort of my jam when it comes to cars. Anyway, where were we? There's a truck. Jack and Joan make it to a bigger town to clean up and part ways, but get distracted by a festival and end up spending a romantic evening together. Lying in bed, Jack suggests that using the map to go after the treasure could give Joan more leverage to get Elaine back. And she is amenable. Meanwhile, Ralph has spotted them and is camped out in his car outside the hotel. In the morning, they escape out the window of the hotel and hotwire the nearest car, Ralph's car, with him under a blanket in the back. I'm pausing here because I could not remember why they had to escape. Did I forget? Was it Zolo's minute? Yeah, it was Zolo's. I blanked it out. Maybe I also got distracted by the festival. They didn't actually have to hotwire the car because... Oh, right! Ralph apparently sleeps in his own car with the key in the ignition. Yes, you're absolutely right. I forgot about that. But they did try to, and that's actually kind of the gag, because Jack goes to try to hotwire the car, and she's like, um, actually, how about that key there? Yes. What are you doing? Hotwiring the car. Try the key. The map leads them to a waterfall concealing a cave, containing a pool of water, concealing a bundle, containing a ceramic bunny statue, concealing a giant heart-shaped emerald, El Corazon. Ralph has emerged from the trunk and takes the emerald from them at gunpoint. But Zolo's men show up, distracting Ralph long enough for Jack and Joan to steal it back and race away in the car. They don't get far, though, before they end up in a river. 
It takes them over a waterfall. They jump out of the car just in time, but end up on opposite sides of the river. And <laughs> 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 promise to be in Great callback to episode one. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Joe makes it there first and gets instructions from Ira to bring the map to an old fort on the other side of the harbor. The time comes and there's still no Jack, so she heads over and trades the map for Elaine. All is going well until Jack turns up, held at gunpoint by Zolo and his men. Now that Zolo's calling the shots, he walks everyone out to his alligator pit and demands the stone. Look at those snappers. <laughs> Look at those snappers. By the way, that's actually Ira. Ira twice in this movie is like, Look at those snappers. I think it's more than twice. Anytime he sees alligators, he says, look at those snappers. Look at those snappers, Ralph. (laughs) I actually really love his accent. He has my other favorite line at the beginning where Ralph is trying to figure out if Ira is going to double cross him. Ira has this great, bizarre line. Okay, I know they're from Queens, but I still kind of read it in like a Kennedy-esque voice. It's fantastic. We are not two people. We are one person. Would I hurt me? I got a real bad feeling about it. Real bad. Will you stop worrying? Have I ever hurt you? I will never hurt you. I can't hurt you. We got the same blood. We're not two people. We are one person. Would I hurt me? (laughs) What are you talking about? (laughs) I love it. Okay, so everybody pretends not to have the stone until one of his goons tries to whack Jack in the groin only to hear an odd clank. Jack does a funny little dance, and the emerald slithers out of his pants leg onto his boot. He tries to kick it over their heads, but Zolo catches it until an alligator snaps it up along with his hand. Look at them snappers. Look at them snappers. Snapping the hand. Snapped his hand right off. Oh, I got it. I got it. Jack T. Colton. The T stands for, that's not my balls. (laughs) (laughs) Jack T. Colton. The T stands for, the family jewels. Oh, I got it. Okay. Okay. No? Okay. Maybe it's not that great. <laughs> I got excited. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. I need to do a cheek workout because, oh. Because you're loving this so much that I'm making yes. your face hurt. <laughs> yes. These plot summaries make me smile. You really and like her? Yes. Do you not get tired of me talking? No. <laughs> okay. Good. Because that's not the end. There's like two more bear cups. <laughs> the T stands for that's not the end of this plot summary. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Okay. Joan and Elaine make a run for it. Jack goes after the alligator that ate the emerald. Zolo catches up with the sisters, and Joan fights back while Elaine unhelpfully passes out. Jack has caught the gator by the tail and is trying to keep it from escaping into the harbor when he spots Zolo and Joan. He gets there just after Zolo has already fallen into yet another gator pit and been eaten alive. Before diving into the harbor to avoid the cops, he gives Joan a kiss and tells her, You'll be fine. Back in Manhattan, Joan has just delivered another manuscript to her publisher, her best one yet, apparently. She heads home from the meeting to find a sailboat parked in front of her building, with Jack standing on the deck in a brand new pair of alligator boots. She climbs up the rope ladder into his arms, and they kiss all the way down West End Avenue into the sunset. The end. It is a very impractical scene, though. I mean, I guess a lot of dramatic shows of love can be impractical, but... Showing up with a boat sails up in the middle of New York. Kind of impractical. I don't think it would have made it under many bridges. (laughs) Fair enough. But still, yes. (laughs) By the way, I did actually look up what street that was. It is actually West End Avenue. Oh, really? I looked at the shooting locations. And yeah. That's cool. I was hoping it would be a street with better name recognition, but I stuck with the accuracy over. I appreciate it. So, okay. One thing that I just want to quickly say that is amazing about this movie is Holland Taylor. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed Holland Taylor as the publisher in this. Yeah. And by the accounts that you were talking about in the beginning, and from what I've also read, Holland Taylor as the publisher is just miles ahead of the creepy male publisher that was also potentially in that role. And I think they even shot a lot of it with him in that role. They did, yeah. And then only after screenings did they realize how big of a mistake that was. Yeah, absolutely. And this actually gets us into one of the big pieces of drama around the making of this movie. So in the first section, we talked a lot about Michael Douglas and championing Diane Thomas and all of that good stuff. And we also touched on Robert Zemeckis and where he was in his career And this really especially ties into that. So as we've already talked about, like Zemeckis was coming off of a couple of not successful movies. He directed this movie. Mm -hmm. They showed the first cut of it to people and they hated it. (laughs) So the studios got like super freaked out and Zemeckis had been hired to direct Cocoon, which is a great movie, by the way. 
but they actually retracted that offer and fired him from Cocoon before filming ever began just because of how badly the initial screening of this movie went. But he came back to them and was basically like, I can fix this, I can fix this. And her publisher character, which was a creepy dude who kept hitting on her, that was one of the changes they made. They reshot it and they changed the character. They made it Holland Taylor. They made her more of like a friend figure who was trying to push her to date more. But because of how badly that screening went, the studio just didn't expect it to go well at all. But they already shot it and they invested at least in some minor reshoots. So they released it and it made just a ton of money. Mm Mm-hmm. The initial budget, I believe, was $10 million, and it made like 115 gross. So they were like, oops. <laughs> and then they gave Zemeckis back to the future. So he got back in their good graces pretty quickly. This is one instance where the sunk cost fallacy worked out very well. <laughs> yeah. Even though it didn't screen well, once it made it to theaters and it made its return, you know, the 10x return, everybody was surprised and... I think, and I think a lot of people would agree, the fact that Zemeckis was pulled off of Cocoon and eventually went on to make Back to the Future was the best timeline. Yeah. It's like you talked about in the Jurassic Park episode. It's like what happens with movies is what needs to happen. I mean, maybe I'm not believing in fate quite as much as all that, but I do think that sometimes it's like, oh, thank God it worked out that way. Yeah. Well, the bright spots also stick with you a lot more. So we could probably say the same thing in the inverse. But for me, when I look at the movies that I love and the stories that brought us to where the right director, the right actors were in the right place at the right time, where actors or directors are coming off the backs of movies that did not receive much critical acclaim, but it still leads to these stories that we really love and movies that we really love. I choose to believe that that is some type of fate or destiny or whatever you want to call it. I mean, I love the idea that the movie gods are just out there like, oh, this one belongs with Zemeckis. (laughs) I don't know. Anywho. So another piece that was a part of those big reshoots is actually one of my favorite scenes, which I like to think of as the hot boxing scene (laughs) in the plane. If you watch carefully, there are some physical changes between when they're outside the plane and when they're inside the plane. And that's because inside was shot after principal photography. Also, they kill a snake. I mean, that's not a part of why I like it. And I don't know if they killed a real snake. Oh, it's so sad. I hope they didn't kill a real snake because that real snake that was used in that real scene was definitely not a real Bushmaster. (laughs) Thank goodness that it wasn't a real Bushmaster, sure, for the safety of the actors, but... It did look like a real snake may have been harmed, and that's off-putting no matter what the species is. It did look really realistic, yeah. But I will Google that, actually. I want to know. I may not be able to find it in time, but... I'm just a every-animal-is-just-doing-their-thing type person. Like, hey, if you were born a Bushmaster, and you're just trying to survive, and these people are in your way, you're going to react to that situation... If you're scared, you might try to protect yourself by biting or if you feel threatened or whatever. But I don't have a lot of sympathy for people who act irrationally based on their own misunderstanding of what an animal is trying to do to protect itself. Big aside, and I understand that, but when you see a snake, please don't kill it. The snake's trying to survive, and it will most likely be deterred by, like, a spray with a hose or a broom or whatever. It's not trying to hurt you. It's just trying to survive. So, anyway. Agreed. And in the meantime, I have found an answer from the California Herps, which I assume is a herpetology society. (laughs) They used a real snake when we see it crawl up into the air behind Joan's head. We see a fake snake when it is killed, and then what might be a real but dead snake after he kills it. Does it say what the real snake is that crawls up behind her? It says none of them look anything like a Bushmaster. <laughs> that's what I <laughs> that's, said yeah, while said. we were watching the movie. So It does not say what kind of snake they actually used, but I do feel like you see enough of it to tell. You see enough of the head in the pattern to know that it's not a Bushmaster. But it's shot from like underneath the snake, so maybe you can't tell very well from under there. Somebody knows. That's our guest for this movie. (laughs) Who is the snake handler on Romancing the Stone? They might be in Mexico, too. That's something that we haven't mentioned yet, is this was almost all shot in Mexico. Reddit, this is your time to shine. Reddit, please find for us the snake handler from 1984's Romancing the Stone shot around tropical Mexico. (laughs) Yeah. So, I have a piece of trivia for you. 
All right. Do you know where the title of the film comes from? Is it a reference to something that I should know? Uh, I wouldn't say should know, but it is a reference that is outside of this movie. It feels familiar, but I don't think I will come up with it. So the phrase romancing the stone is actually a piece of jeweler's jargon referring to something that happens when people are preparing jewelry to sell. Mm. So I didn't realize that because the title makes sense without that because he's trying to romance the stone out from under her or that's the suspicion. Right. It feels like finessing. But yeah, it's actually a real term. Who knew? So it's a jeweler's term, but where exactly does that come from? So I did a quick search and it seems to just refer to like giving backstory for a gym that makes it seem more exotic or desirable. So oh. it's kind of like you're romancing it up a little bit, you know, okay. like, to get it to sell for a higher price. Interesting. Okay. That makes yeah. some sense. So anyway, that's kind of a cool, like I had never heard that phrase before. One thing that I liked is the alternative casting for this one. For this movie, apparently Sylvester Stallone turned it down for a movie called Rhinestone, which I've never heard of. Clint Eastwood, Jack Nicholson, Christopher Reeve, Burt Reynolds were all approached or considered or interested or whatever. And then, of course, like we talked about at the beginning, nobody wanted it. So Michael Douglas was like, God damn it, I guess I have to do it myself. (laughs) (laughs) On the women's side, Deborah Winger and Jessica Lange were the only two. Mm. And then they found Kathleen Turner. And then her chemistry with Michael Douglas and Danny DeVito was just fantastic. She doesn't have a ton of scenes with Danny DeVito, but there are all of these awesome set pictures of the three of them together. I like that. Yes, obviously. Yeah, me too. And I know that you had said that there was some concern about making Kathleen Turner actually appear dowdy and house mousy. Yeah, (laughs) they didn't think they could do it. But I think that it turned out very, very well. It did, yes. And I think that that chemistry, and in this case, I'll admit, I see the romantic chemistry some, but primarily I just see the friend chemistry or like the we enjoy spending time together chemistry. Mm -hmm. And one of the other really famous scenes in this movie, the dancing scene, Mm -hmm. when they finally make it out of the jungle and they're in the bigger town, the way that that scene came about is a pretty interesting story. I guess because they shot a lot of this on location in Mexico, they were just sort of on set in the square there with a bunch of extras after a long day. And Zemeckis caught them dancing with each other. And he was just like, turn the cameras on, turn the cameras on. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying that this is the footage that ended up in the movie, but at the very least, that dancing scene was inspired by just Michael Douglas teaching Kathleen Turner a little dance. And they were dancing together and it looked like they were having a blast. Yeah, see that I can believe the idea that Zemeckis just turned on the cameras and suddenly they were having close ups and all of these incredible shots with nobody in the way, you know, dancing is pretty chaotic or not chaotic, but at least involves a lot of motion that would be happening in front of the cameras. It's hard to shoot. Right. And so I choose to believe that those scenes were inspired by them dancing I don't know that I can agree with the accounts that, oh, they just turned the cameras and suddenly we have movie magic that is perfectly lit, perfectly choreographed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, nobody was dancing in front of them, all that stuff. That's pretty hard for me to swallow. Right. Well, this is another one that like, if somebody out there has that on tape somewhere, please drop it anonymously in the mail because I would love to see it. <laughs> I promise not to tell anyone. <laughs> theadventurelings at gmail.com. Yep, yep, theadventurelings at gmail.com if you have that footage somewhere. Please, 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 please. I want to see it so bad. <laughs> but you will actually see on various trivia pages and stuff, some people do repeat this story as if that footage mm-hmm. in the movie is actually that, but I don't think that's really possible. I don't buy it. So I like how much of this movie kind of came from real moments or improvised approaches to shots. And a lot of it is there in the script. I'm not trying to say that they improvised a bunch of the movie, but I do feel like some of those nice moments came from creativity of the cast and crew. And in that one case, the storyboard artist, and not only from the screenplay. And also we talked about how the environment itself was kind of fighting against them, or at least a big factor in the production process. And that's another thing that I kind of choose to believe that Mexico itself was a character in the story in terms of the production and making this movie magic that we have, you know, the rain, the fact that they were having to move production pieces around, it was a very tough thing, led to a lot of the shots that we have as iconic moments in the movie. So I'm completely okay with that. And there was actually, so the mudslide that we get in the movie is scripted. That was in the original script. But Mm -hmm. there was actually a mudslide that just like happened to them and injured them. (laughs) So I mentioned 
during our watch of the movie that Kathleen Turner had had a number of stitches. Uh, and I was way off. <laughs> I was actually off, too. I tried to guess. It's seven and not six. Okay. But okay. she got some of those during that mudslide, and then the other ones were the raw edges of the plane. Mm-hmm. They were very sharp, and she was, like, falling a little bit out of the plane and reached out to brace herself and then cut herself. But she was apparently like, yeah, it's not on the face. <laughs> That's what she said. She was telling this story in an interview, and she was like, oh, it's not on the face. Doesn't matter. <laughs> nice. So I like just that they were having an experience of the place that was not that different from what was happening in the movie. Do you know what the average production time is when you're on location? Because this one was 90 days, and I think about 45 of those days, it was raining. If I had a good benchmark for what a normal on-location time was... It might help me put some of these pieces together, but if you don't know, then it's not a big deal. I don't. I mean, first of all, if you're going to do it like one-to-one, then you'd pretty much have to pick movies that were shot entirely on location. Mm -hmm. And then it's like budget because shooting time and budget and cast size, I don't know that there's a great benchmark for that, but certainly having 45 days of rain seems like a barrier. (laughs) Exactly. But one thing that I really picked up on this time, I guess I only really saw it for the comedy before, but I watched it differently this time, was when Jack starts reading her book. You get all these little moments where he's looking at her like, okay, all right. (laughs) And then eventually he tells her that he read it and he liked it, you know. But along the way, like after Juan the Bellmaker gives him a copy of it, he's like, we got lots of copies. You can take this one. Ever read The Return of Angelina? No. That woman makes me hungry. How about Love's Wicked Peace? No, I haven't read that one either. Really? Take it. I have many copies. I have here the Ravagers, and I'm waiting for Angelina's savage secret. (laughs) (laughs) So sort of picking at it, like reading it in little bits for basically almost the rest of the movie. Mm -hmm. And there's all these little looks of him just looking at her like, all right, I see you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You've got to imagine that he's kind of seeing himself in some of these stories as well and wondering how he fits into it. And, you know, maybe picking up on the fact that she is writing herself into some of the main character roles herself. So I don't know, like if it were me and I was trying to figure out my relationship with somebody and I'd been given this blueprint of (laughs) what they like, yeah, (laughs) what they like, I'd be like, hmm, interesting. I mean, and it is after that that they have their love scene. He gets the book from Juan, and then they end up in the bigger town that night. But he's definitely read it in between. There are several scenes with him looking at the book. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think he liked it. I think he liked what he read. The T stands for throbbing. Oh! (laughs) Oh, God! (laughs) Oh, gross. (laughs) I can't show my face. (laughs) Don't! Don't show your face! Keep that face away! (laughs) Jack T. Colton... The T stands for Turned On by Romance Novels. Okay. I still feel like we haven't gotten the T thing. Another thing that (laughs) came as a big surprise to me. Did you know that Eddie Grant, and yes, that is Eddie Grant of Electric Avenue, was commissioned to write a song for this movie? I did not. And he did write it. And I personally don't think it's bad, but they chose not to use it for the movie. They use, I think, some of the guitar music or like the melody in the background where somebody's playing, I think, a guitar but they didn't end up using the song. And then he ended up releasing it himself. So you can hear it. It is out there. So go hmm. Google Romancing the Stone by Eddie Grant and enjoy the musical video of him walking along a jungle road. <laughs> well, one of the things that you called out while we were watching the movie is that there is clearly a burgeoning partnership between Zemeckis and Silvestri. Alan Silvestri, yeah. But there are also a lot of moments where there is no music and it makes way for ambiance and these scenes to develop slowly rather than feeling as though you're being kind of rushed from one scene to the next. I feel like in a lot of adventure movies, you kind of get these fast paced, high BPM things that are just like rushing you and keeping you in the action. But that doesn't always jive with adventure movies where it's an even mix of action But exploration, exploring the environment, exploring your feelings, whatever it may be. And this movie seemed to make way for a lot of that time, those slower moments. Yeah, absolutely. It works really well with this movie because so much of it comes from being dumped into unfamiliar circumstances. And we talk about this type of thing a lot with cinematography, big wide open frames, they let you feel the space. Mm -hmm. But it's the same thing with the audio editing or sound editing or sound design in a movie like this, where it's like they dump them in an unfamiliar place and then they let you hear it. And you hear wind and you hear birds. 
I mean, it's, it's not room tone when you're outside, just like the sound of the place. And that really helps it sink in with that music covering it up. And that was one of the problems that I had with Tomb Raider going back a few episodes is that in the game's Tomb Raider, you feel that kind of aloneness. Like when the music cuts off and you're just listening to everything around you, you kind of hear the sound of your own breaths in the void. And it's not just feeling as though you're on this railroad that's taking you to the next scene, the next scene, the next scene. But this movie definitely gave it that space. Yeah. It's a nice thing. So I don't know about you, but I'm kind of getting to the end of what I wanted to say, but I will cap it off with one thing that I just think is cool. We started this episode with a little bit of celebration of the short but fantastic career of Diane Thomas. It is very sad, but she passed away just a year after the release of this movie. But prior to that, obviously, many, many people enjoyed this movie. It became a massive success. And her talent was recognized not only for this movie, but also by Steven Spielberg, who hired her to work with him on the screenplays for two movies, a movie called Always, and then the movie that would become The Last Crusade. So Spielberg saw her, was like, hey, this person is a great adventure writer. I think I should hire her. So just to cap off the whole, is this an Indiana Jones ripoff conversation? Not only is it not, (laughs) but Spielberg brought her in to actually help write an Indiana Jones movie. And she did work on it a bit before she died. Right. So I don't know. My big takeaway is Diane Thomas, underappreciated, groundbreaking adventure writer. Yeah, exactly. I was going to use the term pioneer, you know, that in this renaissance of adventure movies that we were having, she was leading the way yeah. going all the way back to 1978, way before all these other iconic movies were made. And like you said, that she was recognized for that and brought into so many amazing projects that it's a real loss that we weren't able to see her hand in more movies from this era. Yeah, we joke occasionally about the darkest timeline or the alternate timeline. Mm -hmm. The AU that I want, the alternate universe where Diane Thomas goes on to write, I don't know, 30 or 40 adventure movies. I want to know what they would be. I feel like they'd be amazing. I wish we'd gotten to see them. Yes. But in the absence of actually getting to do that, I'm going to imagine that there's another universe somewhere where she's just out there killing it, having the best career. Absolutely. So on that happy note, you have picked the next movie. It is actually one that I have never seen. Yes. So this is the first one that we're doing that I've never seen. I'm super excited because I feel like I've been kind of dominating the movie choices. (laughs) So tell me about it. (laughs) Okay. So we are moving into the more modern era. This is a movie that had been on my list for a really long time. And then I finally just on a whim decided to watch it because it sounded like a fun, light movie. And that's what I needed that day. We're going to be watching The Hunt for the Wilder People, and I'm really excited for it because I think you will like it very much. It's another Sam Neill movie, and I understand that it's going to draw comparisons to Jurassic Park, but we do love a found family movie, and this one being directed by Taika Waititi, I think, is a really great step into this modern era of adventure movies. I'm really excited for you to see it. And I think it's going to be a great time. I am really excited. I know he's done a lot of big stuff, but I personally feel like Taika Waititi is at his best with Small and Quirky. So I'm really excited to see this. And, you know, love Sam Neill, love a journey type of movie. I've only really read the description so far, and that's all I know. So I am stoked about it. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you're going into it fairly blind because there are going to be a lot of pleasant surprises and it is definitely on the comedic side of adventure movies, but I still think it falls into the category. So regardless, you're going to have to watch it and (laughs) I don't care. I I get to watch it. (laughs) I don't care if it actually meets all the requirements. You and I are going to watch a movie that I think we'll both enjoy and we'll enjoy sharing with our audience. Awesome. And on that note, I will say to our audience, we'll see you shortly. And I don't mean with my legs cut off. (laughs) I made you do it. You did. (laughs) To get that one, you need to listen to the bloopers at the end of the last one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's so good, though. Oh, how is it that the joke that I made as a six-year-old is the greatest joke of my entire life? You peaked early. You peaked early. (laughs) I peaked early. Comedically. (laughs) (laughs) and by the way while we've got you you can find us on instagram at the adventurelings you can send us an email directly with your thoughts feelings movie recommendations etc at the adventurelings at gmail.com 
And then, of course, we always appreciate your subscribes, your reviews, your follows, or whatever the hell it is the platform you're listening on does. But thank you so much for your support, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you for joining us today on Adventurelings, your weekly dose of filmic insanity. Let's do the same thing, but just with more energy. and But just better. Yeah. <laughs> mm, can you just do that again, but have it not suck? Okay. When I Googled it, Urban Dictionary came up first. Oh, no. Yeah. Okay. Romancing the stone. Look at those snappers. The T stands for not a reader. Jack, I know. I backed into this one, and now I can't get out. <laughs> you have to hot wear the chire. The, the T stands for t- t- unaware. T- unaware. T- unaware. <laughs> the T stands for not t- looking out for <laughs> the key. It is still my second favorite joke of all time. Do you want to hear it? Yeah. Emily, ask me if I'm a carrot. Oh. <laughs> oh, oh man. <sighs> that is the grossest thing I've ever heard. Well, not, but it's one of them. It's the grossest thing Lance has ever heard. Maybe Sorry, we're bud. underestimating Lance. Sorry, we, don't know what, we don't know his jam. We um, don't. Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> I can't separate that anymore. It's blocked out. Yeah. Whatever wholesome stuff he did before that is gone. <laughs> what the fuck? Wanna stop recording, by the way? Oh, sure. Should probably do that. <laughs> <laughs>